Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome back to our birthday bash of bacteriologist Bonanza. If you are new to the show, hi, how are you? Welcome to the Micro Moment, that show that shows every moment is a micro moment. I'm your host, Tess. And I'm John. And today we bring you part two of our episode on Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch, perhaps the greatest microbiologist of all time. So, if you haven't listened to part one, I'd hit pause here and go listen to that one and come back. We'll wait. All right, one more thing before we begin. What's that? We have to reveal who was the mystery micro moment of last week. Ooh, that's right. Well, if you are new to the show, the mystery micro moment works like this. We will give you three clues. Not one, not two, but three. Actually, I think this week I have four, so sometimes more. We'll see. (laughs) Throughout the episode of Famous Persons, Micro Moment. And if you know the answer to whose micro moment we are discussing, you can let us know by sending us a Gmail at microbegals at gmail.com. Or you can tag us on Twitter or Instagram at microbegals. Okay, John, why don't you catch us up and recap on the three clues from last week's episode. Okay. So, clue one. This person attended Hunter College and initially wanted to study French or literature, but decided to switch their field to study biochemistry against their recommendations of professors who felt women struggled to get their careers in science. Boo. That didn't stop them as they ended up getting their PhD at the University of Wisconsin. Get it, girl. Clue number two. This person found a virus whose name is the 11th letter of the Greek alphabet. And its DNA integrates into the DNA of E. coli in dormancy only to come out and replicate in times of stress. And the 11th letter of the Greek alphabet is lambda, right? That is correct. And this virus is used today to understand how genes are controlled and the exchange of DNA between organisms. What a legacy. The final clue is... This person found the fertility factor or genes that can be passed from one bacteria to another. But don't worry, this horizontal gene transfer is appropriate for all ages. All right, so if you know who it is, I hope that you let us know on Twitter or Instagram or sent us a Gmail. Thank you for everyone who did send in your guesses. And if you have no clue, I'm here to tell you, to reveal to you who our mystery micro moment is. And it is none other but Esther Ledenberg. If you didn't get it, no worries. We have another micro mystery moment coming at you today that I will supply clues for, and John will make a guess at the end. So feel free to participate in that as well. I can't wait. And if you'd like to learn more about Esther Ledenberg, we have a really fantastic blog on her life on our website, microbegals.com. We also have a podcast on her that we did last year. Check out episode 11 if you're interested. Yeah, she was our first one we did for the bacteriologist birthday bash of December bonanza. <laughs> we got to work on that title. Yeah. It's a working title. Always working title. Work in progress. Always something better. We'll get there. All right. That was a lot of chit chat. But before we dive into more of the Robert Koch and Louis Pasteur story, I want to begin with giving you clue number one to our mystery micro moment for this week. You got your thinking cap on, John? I've had it on since last week. Nice. All right. So keeping in the December babies, this December baby passed endless hours under what they called the dreaming tree. While not as famous as the kid would grow up to be, the tree did outlive the kid by nearly 40 years. Both would battle diseases before meeting death one likely from a microbial pathogen, and the other from a non-microbial cause of death. That was pretty uh, ambiguous, huh? That's probably one of the most ambiguous riddles I've gotten. Yeah, that one's tough. I That's what I did. I did four clues, and the last one, I think, makes it all come clear. I promise. Okay, good, because I have no clues of right now. <laughs> that was kind of my hope. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's really hard when the people are super famous to, to make clues that aren't going to be a dead giveaway. Right. So, to quickly sum up part one, we have a German medically inclined scientist, Robert Koch, and a French chemist, Louis Pasteur. Was Robert Koch a, a doctor? Yes, he was an MD. Or a scientist, he was a doctor. He actually had a practice pretty much his entire pr- uh, professional career. 
Mm, interesting. Forgot. They both fought and helped establish germ theory. Both pioneered microbiology and both wanted to fight for their country during the Franco-Prussian War. On opposite sides. Yep. Dun, dun, dun. This added to the language barrier, and it's easy to see that we have the perfect brew for our rivalry, which we will get to later. Oh boy, I'm excited. And uh, yeah, we didn't get too much into Robert Koch last time as he was born some 20 years. I think it's about 20 years after Louis Pasteur. But we did discuss how Pasteur was the king of crystals and chirality, famous for his fermentation facts, the stopper of spontaneous generation theory, Lister's inspiration for antiseptic technique, the savior of silkworms, the protector of milk, beer, and wine through his protocols of pasteurization, and of course, where we ended last time, the voice of vaccines. I remember last episode that we got to the point where it was the twilight of his career, but this was just the beginning for Koch himself as he just figured out the life cycle of anthrax. It was at this point where he published his work and where he changed jobs and he was appointed to the Imperial Health Officer in Berlin, where for the first time he was provided everything they needed to conduct research. And he got two assistants, uh, Friedrich Leffier and George Gafke. He's got these two assistants, which they will be friends for the rest of his life and they will work with him for most of his career. Didn't the Hesses also work with Coke? Yes, but you're kind of getting into the next part, actually. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I got, I got someone who was an assistant to Louis Pasteur that might ring a bell, too. So I'll hold up on my, my Fanny Hess All right. fangirl moment, because I love that girl. <laughs> so it was during this time that Coke tackled another problem. There's no simple way of isolating microbes or getting pure cultures, because microbes were being grown in liquid at the time. Mm -hmm. And it's very easy to contaminate at that point in time. Not to mention nearly impossible to get a single bacteria alone into a culture. Right, and it's hard to know if it's contaminated. Right. Salt micros pretty much look the same in liquid form. But one day, Coke saw a slice of boiled potato that had been left on the counter overnight. Which, side note, who leaves a slice of boiled potato on a counter? I don't know. Just one single slice. Right. But he looked at it. And he saw different colored specks that ended up being different microbes when observed under the microscope. I wonder if we can consider this another accidental discovery that revolutionized the world of microbiology. Yeah, I would say this is uh, a Fleming-esque moment. Mm -hmm. Which Louis Pasteur had one of those with his foul cholera culture last week. That's right. There it is, the color call out of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> one of. One of, yep. <laughs> So more importantly, these colonies that he saw were homogenous or pure. This is where the paper gets a little gray, I will admit. It's said that he tried to use sterile potato slices. I think he moved on due to the nutrient availability or keeping the slice sterile. Because as we know, different microbes require different nutrients and you can only do so much with a potato slice. The book also said that gelatin had been used but to no avail. But Coke changed the gelatin properties and was able to get it solid enough to isolate colonies. It's at this point I would like to point out that the book did not mention that he also tried coagulated egg albumin and starch paste. Also, there's a limit on how the gelatin can uh, be a solid. Once you reach like 25 degrees Celsius, and that's kind of in between room temperature and maybe a little bit above room temperature. Yeah, above room temperature. It turns back into a liquid. And many microbes that we grow or that are grown in a lab are grown at temperatures at 37 Celsius. Nah, -uh, that's just a human-centric view of growing microbes. Okay, I'll rephrase it. Most human microbes are grown at 37 Celsius. Mm-hmm. However, this is where Franny Hess comes in. Yeah, Fanny Hess. In 1882, a wife of someone working in a lab who went by the name Fanny Hess suggested replacing the gelatin with agar, which is derived from seaweed. This is actually superior and cleaner than gelatin. And once hardened, it can be placed into temperatures up to 60 degrees Celsius without melting and is resistant to bacterial enzymes, which makes it a lot better to use. Mm -hmm. And just as a side note, Fanny Hess may not be a December baby, but she does have a December death date. Uh, she died on December 1st, 1934. 
So sort of fits with the theme. Yeah. So I'd like to point out that I kind of disagreed on the book on this end. It's like, gelatin, he did it. Hurrah. I'm like, no, that's not the end of it. Mm-hmm. All right, and that's it's at this point where we jump into 1881. Do you have anything for 1881? I do. So if you remember where we left off with Louis Pasteur last time, we were talking about foul cholera, like the bird cholera version. And what he did was he was discovering that if you added an attenuated or a weakened version of the disease into the chickens, they wouldn't get as sick as if you did a very potent culture of the disease. So he had this kind of preliminary idea of how we can make vaccines by introducing a weakened culture or weakened strain or weakened product of the bacteria into a host and allowing the immune system to take over and kind of create the antibodies necessary so that you don't get sick when a stronger version of that disease is introduced. So he started making a vaccine for anthrax, which John just talked about. Robert Koch was also studying around the same time. And so this would be in February of 1881. He went off to start creating this anthrax vaccine. And in May 5th of 1881, he set out to prove that he had created this anthrax vaccine. So he wanted to do this in a very public display. So everything was very open so everyone could see and no one could think that he was cheating in any way um, or that he was not curing anthrax. So what he did is he got 60 sheep. Okay, so we have 60 sheep. 25 of them got two shots of attenuated bacillus anthracis. So this is like his preliminary or pilot vaccine, right? His very primitive, that's the word, this very primitive version of vaccines. He got two shots of this over the course of two weeks. So they got one shot, and then a couple um, days later, they got the second shot. Similar to what we did with COVID-19, if you got the uh, Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine, you got it in two doses, right? Right. And then the other 25 sheep did not get any vaccines. This is sort of like his control, right? So he inoculated all 50 sheep with a strong culture of bacillus anthracis and waited. So you have 25 that have a vaccine, 25 that don't have the vaccine. All of them got a shot of bacillus anthracis. So they should get anthrax, right? They should die like most sheep do when they get the disease. Now, I said he had 60 sheep. The other 10 sheep that weren't used here was his negative control. They didn't get anthrax they or they didn't get bacillus anthracis they didn't get any of the attenuated vaccine they were just there to survive right and to be that healthy negative control it's a good scientific setup so far yeah and then he did this in a very public place right so all the sheep and all the cows or just sheep here at, at this point so all the sheep were kind of like in a public spot so you couldn't be like oh that sheep died and in the middle of the night he came and replaced it with a new sheep right so it was in a, in a spot but you could kind of tell that none of the sheep were being removed so to speak and then after some time what everyone realized was that the ones that received the attenuated vaccine the weakened bacillus anthracis culture these sheep survived while those that were not pre-inoculated with the weakened vaccine died and there was much rejoicing yay yay so i mean just Another kind of point is like Pasteur is just doing all this stuff. I know I keep harping on this, but it's just amazing that he's saving silkworms and he's saving war victims. He worked on childbed fever, so he's saving new mothers. He's looking at the hospitalization of people and antiseptic technique, and he's saving the cows and the sheep and the oxen from anthrax. And so he's doing the beer. He did the wine thing. He's all over the place. And so you know where he went after all this? Actually, I have no idea. He went to man's best friend and tried to tackle the problem of rabies. Now, at the time, rabies of humans was just called hydrophobia, which means fear of water. So it wasn't really called rabies. And we have a whole podcast on that, too. It's one of our very first ones, I believe, where we talk about rabies and werewolves. It's one of our Halloween episodes. (laughs) Blast of the past. Yeah. Yeah. We did that one time way long ago when we were baby podcasters. (laughs) So anyways, when he was doing rabies, he was doing a very similar thing to what he did with anthrax. It worked with anthrax. He just like, let's just recycle the whole thing and like move forward. Right. But rabies has a slight problem with kind of the methodology that Louis Pasteur did 
with the bacteria Bacillus anthracis. Do you know what it is? It's been a while. Is it because rabies is a virus, not a bacteria? Right. And it's um, a lot harder to grow. He didn't know how to grow Lysivirus, which is the virus that causes rabies. So he took an infected bunny, dried out its medulla, which is a piece of your brain, and injected it into some dogs, which then got bit by rabid animals. So he took the medulla as his attenuated vaccine, right, and injected that into the dogs without culturing it on anything. And the dogs were able to survive the rabies. Oh, good. Yeah. So he was just doing that with all sorts of different things. Like, how can we take the diseases and figure out ways that we can train the immune system to protect itself from the various pathogens that are out there? So what was Robert Koch up to in 1881? He's diving into his next big discovery. Which is? It circles all around tuberculosis. Ooh, tuberculosis. We haven't done like a podcast on just tuberculosis, huh? No, but we've covered it in Vampires of this year. Oh, that's true. We did the New England tuberculosis scare. That's right. Yeah. We should do one on the Wild West, though. Wild West of tuberculosis. The consumption of the Wild West. That'd be fun. So tuberculosis killed 30 million people in the 19th century. And as we've discussed before, it is also a slow disease. And detection only occurs in advanced stages. Even if they could detect it earlier, there was no effective treatment at the time. In addition, many thought it was an inherited disease as it seemed to run through families. But despite this, there had been some scientific discoveries. First, there was the discovery of the turbicle in the deceased. This, these are lesions which contain the bacteria and immune cells in the lungs, and they're little things of dead tissue. Also, it had been proven that it could be transmitted by Kohnheim, which I talked about last episode, from humans to animals. And in 1881, Koch started studying this disease and pretty much would do so for the rest of his life. When he studied the disease, he used what is now Koch's postulates and what we kind of discussed about in our previous episode, and he would later publish this. And so there's four steps to prove a microbe is a cause of the disease it first must be present in all cases of the disease. Second, the microbe must be isolated from the disease and grown in pure culture. Third, the microbe is inoculated into a healthy organism and must cause disease. And last, the microbe must be re-isolated from the inoculated organism and grown in culture. So Koch started by replicating Konheim's experiments, but he couldn't see the organism which was made more difficult by the fact that this is a smaller and slower-growing bacteria than anthrax. After failing with many dyes, he used methylene blue, and voila, he was able to see the small bacilli. And we use methylene blue today for gram staining. Yeah, and we should probably just mention that bacilli is just a rod-shaped microbe. Right. It has a little curve, little curve rod. Good call. So next, he needed to grow it. And eventually he found that blood serum jelly worked. What that is, I don't exactly know. Did you just say blood and jelly? Blood serum jelly. Wow, that sounds like something you'd see on a vampire's Thanksgiving dinner table, huh? Well, this disease was thought to be the cause of vampires at one point in time, so it's not that far off, I would say. Makes sense, makes sense. And after two weeks of waiting, he finally saw growth. After repeating this experiment... He then inoculated the microbe into animals, who eventually died, and he was able to re-isolate it from the tissue. He presented his results in 1882 at Berlin Physiological Society in front of Emil Heinrich Dubos Raimund, who was a German physician and physiologist, the co-discoverer of nerve action potential. Hermann von Helmholtz, who contributed to eye and auditory speech. Paul Heinrich, who discovered the first cure for syphilis and developed the first precursor to gram staining, Emil von Berhing, who would discover an antitoxin to diphtheria, of course, Conan Konenheim, like last time, his assistants, and Virchow, who had declined a private demonstration. This is the guy that kind of brushed him off last time. He poo-pooed him. Yeah. And Robert Koch was like, please just love me. Right. And I think at this point, the book called him the Professor of Professors, which is... Professor of Professors. It sounds like a 
evil supervillain's name. Right. So now he has this room full of like these really smart scientists who either have or will be contributing to science. And it was said that after he presented all his experiments and his results, that there was no discussions or objections because everyone thought that his thought process was pretty sound. And afterwards, he was congratulated and Virchow just walked out of the room. Became a supervillain. Yeah. I'm not 100%, but I think he kind of faded into obscurity eventually. I mean, obviously, I don't know him. In any case, Robert Koch published his findings a week later, calling the microbe Terpical Bacillus. Terpical. It's so terpical, man. <laughs> radical. I know, it's like tubular mixed with radical together. It's like the ultimate California surfer. Tubercle, dude. Yeah. This publication is what made him famous worldwide, and he followed up with a paper in 1884 that showed that it could be transmitted by breathing it in. He somehow created a contraption which was able to aerosolize it, showed that animals that breathed it in could get tuberculosis. So mm-hmm. now we know it's air transmitted. But now people know that consumption, this disease that's been racking humanity for millions of years, is actually made by a bacteria. Pretty cool. But he's still ramping up because now we enter 1883. Do you have anything between that time? No, but like what else does Robert Koch have? We just did Koch's postulates. We did tuberculosis. Like where are we going? Cholera. (laughs) Of course. Cholera is always coming. Yeah. I will say again, this is a point of contention, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Oh, boy. In 1883, a cholera epidemic broke out in Egypt, and both France and Germany sent people to work in it. And Koch, of course, headed the German team. And not as soon as they had arrived, the outbreak subsided. But Koch wanted to, and got permission to, go to India to study the disease, and he was able to see the microbe, but only found it in the intestines of the sick, but not in the healthy, as you might expect. He was able to grow the microbe, but noted it needed to be a moist and wet environment, which really makes sense because the microbe that causes cholera is actually found in brackish water, like seawater, so it makes sense that it needs this environment to grow in. Mm -hmm. On top of that, he noted that it was crescent-shaped, and so he called it the comma bacilli. Comma bacilli. Yep. As in a curved rod. Exactly. Koch also found that bad sewage conditions were spreading the disease and found it in contaminated water and the use of disinfectants helped prevent the spread. So in essence, there was no cure, but they figured out a way to prevent the spread. Good hygiene and good water sources. I love the fact that when we go back 150 years, the lessons are still the same that they are today. There's still people like studying real cholera there are still people saying you know you should wash your hands and have better hygiene and we're still being plagued by this stuff yeah it's just kind of amazing that so much that we know from hundreds or that's 150 years ago or so is still people are not oh it's frustrating but cool (laughs) (laughs) i mean there are definitely people in places where hygiene is tough but yeah particularly in america with the covid vaccine stuff it's yeah it's like wash your hands cook your food wear a mask and if you need to boil your water get the vaccine but it also should be noted that he was not able to give all animals the disease in fact there were some animals that you can colonize but very few that exhibit the disease in today's times which include infant mice and infant rabbits And so he went back to Germany and presented his findings again. Not all believed him, though, including Max Joseph von Pettenkopf, who was known for his work in practical hygiene as an apostle of good water, fresh air, and proper sewage disposal. To disprove Coke, he drank a culture of cholera and said that he only had a slight sensation of sickness and did not get violently sick. He did not. He did. Really? Yeah. So there might be a variety of factors here. One, I don't know how old the culture is. Mm-hmm. Also, if you have a quote-unquote healthy gut microbiome, you're much less likely to get sick from cholera, possibly due to the microbe not being able to engraft in the intestines. Mm-hmm. Some studies have shown that an empty stomach is a lot more detrimental for the microbe to 
infective than a full one. Really? Yeah. So they noticed that it takes a higher concentration of cholera to infect someone on an empty stomach than a full stomach. They think that's because all the food in there makes it a more basic environment. Oh, okay. Sure. Despite this, though, most believed uh, Koch's results, and it led to new sanitary laws in Germany. Just in Germany? I mean... Spread throughout the world? I mean, I guess eventually? Eventually, but they focused more on, you know, his home country at that time. Mm-hmm. And this is where the debate comes in, or the controversy, is it should be noted that Robert was, in fact, not the first person to discover the bacterium Vibrio cholera. That award goes to Filippo Passini, an Italian scientist. It was in 1854 during a cholera pandemic that he viewed the deceased intestinal mucosa under the microscope, and he saw the comma-shaped bacilli. That year, he published a paper on it tying Vibrio cholera to disease. Later on, he correctly found the disease was due to a massive loss of fluid and electrolytes due to the microbes' action on the intestines. They have a toxin, and that's what really causes the diarrhea of the disease. And this is, so that was 1850s is when it was first discovered by Filippo. Yeah, 1854. We're in the 1880s with Robert Koch. And it was like the 1830s for Jon Snow? Oh, I know. I think uh, Jon Snow is pretty close to Filippo Passini, actually. Like the 1840s, 1850s? Yeah, around that time. I can't remember off the top of my head, but he was pretty close to Filippo Passini. Actually, Filippo Passini suggested IV therapy for most extreme cases. Well, that's like what we do today. Yeah. (laughs) See, it's just another instance where we had it all figured out 150 years ago. But despite all this, the scientific community ignored his findings. Lame. He was in Italy and he published in Italian journals, but germ theory was not a thing or widely regarded in Italy at that time. They were still more about spontaneous generation, the miasma, stuff that is incorrect. So despite this, since I don't know if you remember, I said this was published in 1961, the book. Four years after this book was published, the International Committee on Nomenclature ruled that Filippo was the first to discover it. <laughs> like how there's a committee on everything. <laughs> Fantastic. So? 1845. That's a Broad Street Pump incident of Jon Snow. Okay. So maybe like 10 years later, Filippo came in, and some 30 years after that, Robert Koch came in. Good internet sleuthing. I got that from our website. (laughs) Another little plug of our uh, website. (laughs) Great. Perfect. We just have everything on there. It's perfect. Just the perfect website. This is where we come to 1885, so I think you might have something for this time period. I do, I do. First, I want to give you clue number two of the mystery microbe moment. Are you ready? All right. Let's see if I can figure this one out. Okay. This one gives you a little bit of a time of where we are. I think the last one just gave you vaguely a place and a tree. Just gave you a tree, really. Okay. Clue number two. During the height of the Spanish flu epidemic, or the 1918 flu, as some people call it, this person falsified their records so they could join the American Ambulance Corps and went to France at the end of World War I. Now, ambulances aren't necessarily microbe-oriented, but I think it's hard to do anything medical without microbes, so it's a micro moment. Um, hmm. I might have something, but I'm not sure. All right, what you think? I can't say. I'll wait till I hear all three clues before I give my guess. Okay. There are four. There are four clues. But you'll have to tell me if it changes from what you think now to then. This week's episode of The Micro Moment is brought to you by Zymo Research. Accurate and reproducible microbiome analysis relies on well-defined mock community standards as well as optimized methods for sample collection, nucleic acid extraction, library prep, and bioinformatics. Check out Zymo's complete microbiome workflow at zymoresearch.com. That's Z-Y-M-O-R-E-S-E. 
E-A-R-C-H dot com. Okay, back to Louis Pasteur and his rabies vaccine. So he tried it out on dogs, which is great, but it's not people, right? So it's a little bit different. On July 6th of 1885, in comes Joseph Meester, who is a nine-year-old boy who is just infected with rabies. His grieving mother is holding his frail little hand and begging Pasteur for his miracle vaccine to save her little boy. But the vaccine has never been tested on humans. No one has ever survived a rabies infection. To do nothing would mean to condemn the boy to death. To do something and having it go awry would mean his scientific career would be over. But, I mean, he's also 63, so yeah, he's getting there anyways. But in either situation, the boy's life was in Pasteur's hands. He decided to give it a shot. Get it? Uh, Get it. <laughs> okay, okay, I got another one. <laughs> and he became the boy who lived. But the 19th century version, not the 20th century one. Get it? Did you get that one? <laughs> uh. <laughs> anyways. <laughs> if you can't humor yourself, then no one else can either, you know? <laughs> and from this, triumph sprouted the great and powerful Pasteur Institute, for which microbiologists for over a century have dreamed to flock to, including Harold Amos, whom we talked about in our Black Lives Matters and microbiology series. Do you want to go to the uh, Pasteur Institute? Yeah, I think it'd be great to visit the Pasteur Institute. Yeah, that'd be so cool. Putting it on the bucket list. Check. Well, well not check, not... but... <laughs> check. We have to go there. We have to go to Microbia. Yeah, we'll just have a box to be checked off. There we go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so that's my 1885. He did the vaccine, saved the boy, made the institute. Harold almost became a fanboy, which was some hundred years later, but just thought I'd throw that in there. I can't exactly blame him for being a fanboy. I mean, who isn't? I know. Dude did everything. And, like, spread out so far. It wasn't just, like, humans. It was other things. It was animals. It was so many things. He coined the term microbe. I mean, come on. How much cooler can you get? Yeah. All right. Well, let's see how much cooler we can get in Robert Koch's life. Uh... You're not too excited about his the rest of his life, huh? No, well, no. He he get he's still pretty cool. It's just this time period. This is from 1885 to 1890. It, it's um it's called the tuberculin debacle. The tuberculin debacle. So at during this time, he became the head of hygienic institute and full professor at the University of Berlin. It was during this time his demeanor began to change, and he was becoming more suspicious and secretive, and only he could research on certain microbes in the lab, which I thought was kind of weird. Do they, like, say why he became sort of... They never really delved in it. They're like, hey, this happened, and they kind of moved on, but I'm really curious of, like, why. Why it was... Yeah. I don't think anyone was ripping off his research. I don't really know why he would become this way. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. But Louis Pasteur was studying all the same things he was. Yeah. So during this time, he was doing more research on tuberculosis. And he found that injecting guinea pigs with the bacteria under the skin would cause an ulcer and sickness, but a subsequent injection showed improved health. And he discovered something which he called tuberculin, which is a protein that's found in the liquid of dead tuberculin bacilli. And he thought hopefully this was a vaccine to the dreaded disease. You know, he's doing some research, and he's getting some pretty good preliminary results. However, there was a conference that was coming up, and he was getting a lot of pressure to present his results. And I'm guessing this is probably from the government and from the university he was working at. And he wasn't comfortable with this. As, like I said, he only had preliminary results. He hadn't been as thorough as his other research, so it didn't feel right to him. But reluctantly, he did. And it seemed that everyone knew at the conference that he had this this miraculous thing to uh, talk about. Even the MC of the conference said that Coke had an, had an injection that killed the disease. Whoa. But when Coke spoke, he was very careful to say that he was conducting research. There had been promising results in animals, but he was not yet done. And he encouraged all others 
to still look for a cure. So he's like, yeah, I have preliminary results, but it's not done. And he's trying to be very clear about this, but the world didn't listen. Isn't that how we always get into like some trouble when the media is like, oh my God, you cured cancer. And then the scientists are like, no, we just found like this thing that probably could help us eventually get to that point. But it definitely, we're not there yet. <laughs> so around the world, people wanted this tuberculin and ended up getting it. Even people with diseases were moving to seaports to get the compound faster. Uh-oh. But it's it wasn't a cure, and doctors were overdosing patients with it. Overdosing like they would get hurt? Like it was detrimental? Yeah, they were giving it too much. So there's resentment being pointed towards Coke. Right, they're like, this is your fault. And he's like, um, dudes, really? I told you not to do this. Yeah, he's like, look, I have research but it's not done. No one's listening. So he had to publish a statement of tuberculin saying it must be injected under the skin. Humans can withstand only a fraction of what are given to guinea pigs. It hmm. does It doesn't not help in advanced cases and should be performed under controlled conditions. Mm-hmm. Now, unfortunately, this wasn't a cure. Buddy said that it could be used as a diagnostic tool for people that had been exposed to it, which is still used today. If you had been exposed, you would get an immune reaction because this is shot under your skin. So you'd have this huge inflammation in the area. And if you had this inflammation, it's like, oh, you've been exposed. Your immune system has been exposed to this. So then, you know, you have to go get an x-ray, possibly antibiotics, yada, yada, yada. I actually had to get this when I was in nursing school, and luckily I had no reaction. Well, that's good. Yeah. And despite this, he would try to find new tuberculin in hopes of finding a cure for the rest of his life. And that brings us to 1890. So some difficulties popped up for Coke during this time. Despite, what kind of difficulties? Yeah, despite Despite the all the everything yeah. that he already went through? So, and... 1890, Coke and his wife were growing apart. Wah, wah. They were like childhood sweethearts, though, right? Yeah. They like the cutest science love story ever. But Robert was diving more into more into his research. Oh, secretive research. Yeah, and Emmy felt more and more neglected and resented his lack of attention. Like, I think it got to the mm. point where he just, he would like eat his dinner and not even acknowledge her existence at one point rude yeah not okay in 1893 they got a divorce but two months later robert married Fraulein friedberg what yeah two months the scandal yeah that ain't no two-month relationship Mm-mm. he was getting some on the side <laughs> and they had actually met in 1890 and she was yep, 18 and is. he was four and he was 47 <gasps> Oh, no. And because of this marriage, there's a fair amount of Coke's friends who refused to talk to him. Oh, yeah, I bet. That's not good. Despite this, they would be married till his death, and she would travel with him when he went on any expeditions, despite getting malaria more than once on these expeditions. Damn. Yeah, I think if you brought me someplace and I got malaria, I'd be like, I'm all set. Bye. Yeah. (laughs) I'm about. <laughs> yeah, I think she would like, I can't remember. I want to say she would r- return, but he would still stay for the research. He's like, whatever, you're only dying. Am I supposed to care? You're 18. You'll be fine. You're young and healthy. Well, <laughs> young. <laughs> younger than I am. <laughs> almost, almost 30 years younger. Almost. It's a long time. Not creepy at all. No, not at all. Definitely not the common age of grooming either. No. So now we end in 1893. What about you? Do you have anything else? Yeah, I'm going to bring us up to a much happier note. Okay. 1892, December 27th, Louis Pasteur celebrates his 70th birthday. And I'm talking, and this was a big party. Fantastic party. It was here that Louis Pasteur and Joseph Lister actually met and they hugged each other. Aw. Oh, that's cute. Like hugging your hero. 
so it was like the two greatest scientific minds outside of Robert Koch, right? We're not talking about him anymore because he just did a creepy thing. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, yeah, so he's celebrating the accomplishments of Louis Pasteur and like lots of people showed up and it was a lot of fun. In November 1894, just to wrap up with Louis Pasteur, Pasteur became very ill with kidney failure, which is an ugly and atrocious way to go. That's how our cat died, and it was terrible. He actually started to get a bit better, which happens a lot with people that have kidney failure. They'll start to get better and like kind of bring this hope that they're going to cure, and then you take a dreadful turn, and... I you die, which is what happened to poor Louis Pasteur on September 28th, 1895. I think September 28th is the time is the day that Alexander Fleming is noted to get penicillin. Maybe it's 25th. Hmm. hmm. Too many microbe dates in my head. And they're all coinciding with each other and overlapping. Yes, indeed. It was definitely September but not in 1895. Anyway, so that's the end of Louis Pasteur, the amazing, the fantastic, the unforgettable Louis Pasteur. But can I give you clue number three of our mystery micro moments? Sure can. All right, so clue number three, we're up to, so last time we talked about World War I and ambulance driving in France. Now we're going to World War II. The U.S. government produces a cartoon entitled insects as carriers of diseases this was created by this person's company in 1945 it's a pretty terrible cartoon you can find it on youtube it's only about nine minutes and it's how microbes and flies lice and mosquitoes will kill everyone and everything unless we destroy the whole population of the insects and if you don't you're to blame and you killed all your friends and your neighbors and you're a terrible person and it talks a bit about typhus and malaria it did have, like, this overarching message of having, like, good hygiene practices, but it was a little over the top, and it was like, we should destroy all the marshlands in the world, which, like, we totally should not. Marshlands are great. Just don't get bit by mosquitoes. Right. Just use your net and mosquito repellent. Yeah. That's, a, you know, a little bit of a tangent, but so that's clue number three. Gives you a little insight about this person's career choices. So I thought it was someone, but now I have no idea who it is that actually, yeah, I got I got nothing. I made this one hard. Yeah, this is a really hard one. I have who, no clue where we are at. Who did you think it was? I wasn't 100% sure, but I heard, you know, Ambulance. I thought maybe Florence Nightingale, but she wasn't an American, mm-hmm. but she was involved with, uh, you know, she went to war. And I was like, ah, maybe it could have been her, you know. Well, I will I will say that this person has very little microbiology education. Actually, I would be quite surprised if they knew much about anything about microbes. Uh, okay. <laughs> so that's another extra little clue. Hmm. Yeah, I got nothing. But I have one more clue. So if you're still stumped, I think the next clue, well... If you're, yeah, the next clue I think is still a little hard, but if you're a diehard fan of the last 20 years, you'll know. All right. I can't wait for the last one. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh, I do have one quote I wanted to talk about with Louis Pasteur. Okay. So this was one of my favorite quotes from Louis Pasteur. Um, He has a lot of great quotes, but this is one that I really like. He says, a man of science should think of what will be said of him in the following century not of the insults or compliments of one day. That's a really good quote. Yeah, and we are saying some fantastic things about Louis Pasteur a century later. So I hope we are living up to that quote to the best of our ability. It's a very deep quote. Mm -hmm. I like it. Forward thinking. All right, why don't you keep going with Robert Koch in the 1890s? All right. So now we're in malaria. So this is caused by a plasmonium parasite that infects and multiplies in red blood cells. And then it bursts out. This causes fever, chills, anemia, fatigue, and can be deadly. Interestingly, though, there are five species of plasmodium that can cause malaria, which I had no idea about. It's also transmitted by a species of mosquito. And at the time of Robert Koch, science at least knew that transmission was by mosquitoes. 
One of his protégés, Alfonso Lorne, speculated that the parasite lived in red blood cells, and he also found the parasite. He later got a Nobel Prize in medicine for this work. So at this time, quinine, a medicine to treat the infection, was around, but it was being grossly misused and could actually bring on symptoms of the disease. So Coke was able to work out a more effective treatment with the medication, and he was also able to determine a more effective dose, and he developed a, a better way to diagnose the stage of the disease. So in essence, he was able to more narrowly use quinone to help in treating this disease. And then in 1905, this is almost like a side note in the whole book, he won the Nobel Prize in Physiology of Medicine for his work on tuberculosis. Oh yeah, that's just a side note. That's not that big a deal. Like, I mean, who does it? Who doesn't have a Nobel Prize? Right. And he's like, oh, he's got a Nobel Prize. But we've got to move on. He's got more stuff to do. Now it's 1906, and now we're in sleeping sickness. Which was the year that syphilis was discovered. Oh, really? <laughs> I have way too many random facts about microbes. Yeah. <laughs> My brain just needs to get them out sometimes. Syphilis, 1906. <laughs> All right. And in 1906, not just uh, was syphilis, but Coke went to study sleeping sickness in Eastern Africa a highly contagious disease that science had figured out was caused by a protozoa called a trypanosome. This was transmitted by the tsetse fly. It could take years to develop symptoms, so during that time, a person could be unknowingly transmitting it to others. The fly would take a blood meal from the infected and pass it to someone else. During his time there, Koch discovered that the disease usually went through three stages. First, the protozoa was found in the blood, and the patient had a high fever. Second, the throat and neck glands would swell. And third, the microbe could invade the brain. It could be found in the cerebrospinal fluid. The affected couldn't move in certain muscles and sleeps for long periods, and eventually gets to the point where they never wake up due to prolonged mental deterioration. Whoa, that's heavy. Yeah, and this disease is almost 100% fatal. In fact, an island he visited had 15,000 inhabitants left of the original 35,000. Wow. That ratio is almost as good as Lister's um, survival rate when he started using aseptic technique with the bandages. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very good statistics back then. What a great survival yeah, rate. Everyone was just surviving back then. And the scary thing about this disease is it's great at evading the immune system. The protozoa are covered in surface glycoproteins. These are things that the immune system recognizes. And so the immune system will recognize it, start to mount a defense, but the microbe will change its covering. And then the body needs to find a new way to recognize it and attack it. But then when that happens, the parasite changes it again. And it keeps doing this until the parasite outpaces the immune system. And your immune system can never catch up. So Coke suggested that the local government destroy the breeding grounds of the fly and to treat early stages with hatoxyl, which was a preparation made with arsenic. So, you know, he's disinfecting his hands with mercury. He's telling people, you know, you need arsenic to kill this this disease. Which were both also treatments for syphilis, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> which I think Paul Paul Ehrlich and Wasserman, who was the first person who came up with a diagnostic test for syphilis, was a protege or assistant of Robert Koch, too. So it, it all ties around. They did the circle. <laughs> there you go. In addition, Koch also developed a blood test to determine the stage of the infection and a treatment plan on how much medicine to give and when. So, you know, he's working on these last two diseases. Like, all right, I got a blood test and I can more accurately give out medication. <laughs> And with his intervention, the death rate of the disease was cut by 90%. Wow, that's good. And this is where we're getting towards the end. Um, other contributions. So he also contributed to Rinderpest, which is the cattle plague in 1896. The what plague? Uh, Rinderpest or cattle plague. Cattle plague. Oh, I thought you said cattle put. Cattle pult. <laughs> like, how do you get a plague of a cattle pult? You might be mixing uh, Holy Grail a little bit. In yes, there. probably. Always. So this was 90% fatal in animals and was a virus. So Coke couldn't see it, but he found it lived in the blood and gallbladder. And he was able to make a vaccine for it. 
where he injected animals with a mixture of infected blood and blood serum from animals that had recovered. And this gave roughly a 75% success rate of uh, immunization. So they didn't go into it, but I think it's because the serum from the, the animals that recovered had antibodies, which bound to the virus mm-hmm. and in, inhibited and allowed their immune system to mount a, an effective immune response. He also worked out a partially effective immunization for cattle, Rhodesian, red water fever, as well as a vaccine for a disease called horse death. And he also contributed to the research on leprosy, black water fever, service sickness, and Texas fever. That brings us to the end of Robert Koch's life, though. Eventually, he passes away in May 27th of 1910, watching the sunset. Really? He watched the sunset? That's an odd detail. Yeah, his wife and secretary left for a couple minutes, and he was looking out a window, and they came back a couple minutes later, and he was just slumped in his chair. His health had been failing for a while, and he had been suffering from angina pectoris. And that's pretty much uh, pain in your chest caused by inadequate blood supply to the heart. So Mm. it eventually caught up to him. Right. At this point, I kind of want to go into some other information about Robert Koch. What other information you got, kid? Well, from all accounts, he was a great doctor and his patients loved him. Mm -hmm. This seemed to be true except for one town, but they only listened to folk healing medicine at the time instead of medicine. And to be fair, medicine wasn't that great at the time either. So, (laughs) Indeed, it was not. In the book, the only time his patients seemed to get annoyed with him is when he became absorbed in studying anthrax because they're waiting in his uh, waiting room for hours and he's under the microscope. And then a farmer comes in, he's like, my sheep are sick. And then he just runs to the farm instead of treating his patients in the waiting room. (laughs) Priorities, you know? Yep. I honestly don't think he wanted all the publicity and showmanship that came with his fame. From what I can tell, he liked to talk to people and have fun and talk science. But he really just wanted to do research and wanted to be a doctor, which seemed to be the biggest passion for him. In fact, toward the end of his life, he gave a speech at the Academy of Medicine and German Medical Society dinner, where he said, Am I entitled to such homage? Have I done nothing else than what all of you are doing every day? I felt like that's a really good quote, and it shows that he was about to research. Mm-hmm. And every time like he had to go to a social thing and get recognitions, the book said he kind of seemed annoyed. He's like, mm, just, just give me a microscope. Like, I don't care. <laughs> There are better ways I can spend my time right now. Right. Mm-hmm. I can feel that. I can get behind that. He was also not the most agreeable man as well. It also sound like towards the end of his life, he got less and less agreeable and more and more internal. Right. So it was around 1891 where one incident with ML von Berhing, who was studying under coke and in a short time found an antitoxin for diphtheria and tetanus. And he was gaining notoriety while Koch's research on tuberculosis was failing. So maybe this is why he was getting a little paranoid and secretive mm-hmm. at that time. Because mm-hmm. things start working for him. And he's got this new hotshot in his lap that's like winning. But what was his name again? Emil von Berhing. Ah, oh, Berhing. Okay. <laughs> Even Koch's inner circle was gravitating towards him which later increased tensions in the lab. But he left in 1894 Later, the two would disagree about TB's effect in cows and humans, with Coke eventually cutting him out of his life. Ooh, the drama. Yeah. In fact, Coke was adamant that people couldn't get bovine tuberculosis. The fact of the matter is people can, but most tuberculosis is from what we now call mycobacterium tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. And the one associated with cattle is mycobacterium bovis. But there are rare cases where people can transmit TB actually to cattle as well. Oh, interesting. So I have a, a fun fact on Louis Pasteur that has to do with diphtheria too. Oh yeah? There's just so much overlap, huh? I mean, everyone is discovering a lot of stuff during this time and it seemed like um, Europe was particularly the time for microbiology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, indeed. So one of Louis Pasteur's assistants, and you let me know if this name sounds familiar to you, was Alexander Yerson. 
as in the dude that discovered the causal agent of the bubonic plague, Yersinia pestis, and the scientist slash microbe we named our dog after. He also studied diphtheria at the Pasteur Institute. They did make a sort of vaccine that drastically diminished mortality rates, so similar to what you were saying in hospitals and they're treating children's with diphtheria, but it wouldn't be as good as the vaccine created by my girls, Pearl Kendrick and Grace Eldring, who in the 1940s created the TDP vaccine that basically everyone gets today to protect against diphtheria, whooping cough, which is caused by Bordetella pertussis, and tetanus, which is caused by Clostridium tetani. Okay, that was my fun fact. <laughs> and then there's another incident with Robert Koch where he was adamant that a single cell bacteria cell could not be isolated. And he was kind of being insulting to this team of people. However, he was able to admit that he was wrong when they demonstrated to him successfully. So it seemed like towards the end, too, like he's kind of hard headed. He's like, no. But this brings us to the final thing Robert Koch versus Louis Pasteur. Bum, bum, bum. And on the moment everyone's been waiting for, we're going to crush it in here in the last 30 seconds of the podcast. Go, yep. John, go. So the book stated that Koch would state the weaknesses in Pasteur's work, and in return, Pasteur would attack Koch about his tuberculin. You know what's the funny thing? What? The weaknesses of Pasteur's work, as in the weak cultures, it was the strength of the vaccine. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm done. <laughs> go. I, I doubt you're done, but we'll continue. <laughs> <laughs> so this was an oversimplification of this tension. They were friendly at first, with Pasteur congratulating Koch on his anthrax research. But several months later, Koch criticized Pasteur's experiments, accusing him of contaminating bacterial cultures and making mistakes on his vaccine studies. <gasps> yeah, he's throwing some shade. Some shade indeed, some microbe shade. The biggest thing, though, was a conference in 80, 1882 where Pasteur was giving a speech and he called Koch's work a collaboration of German works. However, he was speaking in French and the translator made the mistake and translated as a German arrogance. Oh, no, he did not. Yeah. Oh, man, you got to have a good translator. And Pasteur had no idea of the mistranslation and Koch rebuttaled with an emotional letter Quote, concerning inoculation against anthrax, all what we heard was some completely useless data. He, oh. Pasteur, is not <laughs> even a physician, and all this material served only as a vehicle for a violent polemic directed against me. Oh, man. Those would be fighting words. <laughs> and then Pasteur rebuttaled, criticizing the honorary degree that Koch had received at some point. Oh, snap! But Pasteur also got an honor degree, but he sent it back to Germany. <laughs> so yeah, I guess so he was already over that. <laughs> maybe that wasn't as important. He was just tossing honorary degrees back left and right. So Yeah, he's like, whatever. I got so many of these. Not a doctor, whatever. <laughs> Koch even downplayed the importance of Pasteur's rabies vaccine, but he used his work to develop a similar one in the end. <laughs> he's like, mine's better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> probably and they never end up making up and this childish facade went on for decades so it goes to show you that you know these are men not gods so they make mistakes and they get hot tempered mm. all over a mistranslation uh, i think coke was a little too cocky too yeah well i think when you become as big as they were it's easy to have an overinflated head yeah. Despite not liking the limelight, I think it did affect him that way. And I think that brings us to the end of our uh, dual story. Cool, cool, cool. Well, are you ready for our clue number four before we wrap up the podcast here? All right. Let's hear it. Okay. Clue number four of the Mystery Micro Moment. Although this person is no longer with us, their company is everywhere, probably in your house, multiple times, producing beloved forms of entertainment for generations. One film released in 2010 even featured a girl isolated from Corona. I have no clue who this person <laughs> is. No I, clue. No, I don't. Anne Getty? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, Microbial Nation, if you know, you can let us know by sending us a Gmail at microbigals at gmail.com or tagging us on Twitter at microbigals. We do put up the three questions on our social media. So if you'd like to hear any of them or read any of them, again, just jump on our social media, give ourselves a like on Instagram or Twitter, and you will see the three clues and be able to cast your votes in the comments below. Well, Microbial Nation, that includes our two-parter on two heavy hitters in microbiology. Did you enjoy our little birthday bash episodes? If you did, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a review. We would love to read it. Yeah, or tell your friends. They would love to hear it. We have one more episode of 2021. I can't believe we are already here at the end. And this will be our last podcast on the roundup of the bomb. So if you voted for your best article, best moment of microbiology of 2021, thank you so much. And if you did not, polls are already closed. But listen to the episode to see what your friends thought were the top five stories of microbiology for 2021. We will be joined by two other people from Microbytes to deliver this information to you. And we can't wait uh, to bring you the top stories of 2021 and for you to meet our Microbyte friends. Is there a microbiology topic you think we should cover? Let us know by sending us an email at microbigales at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at microbigales. Don't forget to check out our website as well, microbigales.com, where we regularly publish blogs to bring you the world of microbiology. Oh, and one more thing. We'll be taking a break in 2022, but don't worry. We are coming back in March or so to bring you new episodes that will be more interviews, more microbial history, and of course, more of Da Bomb. We are excited for what we are bringing to you in 2022, and we hope you are excited too. Okay, that's it for now. Remember to keep those microbes happy and don't forget to finish your last minute shopping. Bye! Bye.